0: Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Romans chapter 8, and we'll continue our study of Romans chapter 8. The text, of course, is fairly famous. We spent seven or eight weeks on Romans 8:28, and, of course, it is perhaps more famous than 29 and 30. But I guess there's more discussions that take place, at least in theological circles, over 29 and 30. Let me read them to you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Gang, the the last time we were together over this text two weeks ago, I I did you, um, I think, quite a disservice... Um, you could you could call it a disservice, you could say I made a mistake. And my disservice or mistake, whichever you call it, is that I stopped too soon. I stopped about five to seven minutes too soon. You know, I'm really uh, eager and, and and diligent, and I think you can attest to that, that um, uh, we I want you out of here at 745, and we try to quit at 745. And so I stopped too soon. I should never leave you in the middle of this discussion. Uh, that's not pastorally kind, uh, because this stuff is is intricate, it is um it is it is weighty, it is meaty, and um to leave you in the middle of something is not um was not wise on my part. So forgive me, but let, let me tell you in terms of going forward, um I am gonna try to I'm gonna work diligently at putting this thing into um in bite sized pieces. Bite sized by that about it, I mean I start at seven ten. Jimmy's supposed to give this thing to me at seven ten and I'm supposed to be through at um at 745, so that's uh, 35 minutes. I'm going to try to put it in 35-minute bite-sized pieces so that we can conclude something at the end of this night or each night that we're together, at least over these next four or five nights. Now, let me say this also. Next week, we have a congregational meeting, uh, a congregational meeting where we elect some uh, men that have been nominated uh, from, a, we elect from a, a candidate's list. We will uh, do that, which should take at least seven minutes. And then we will proceed in our study of Romans chapter 8. And, um, so I just want you to know that the, I hope you'll be here for the congregational meeting. If you're a member, you can vote. Um, but, uh, if not, come for the Bible study as well. Let me, let me try to give us, um, let me go, kind of put some pieces together from the two weeks ago and then kind of finish it up. Um, I think I can do this rather quickly. You might remember that I said to you that verses 29 and 30 are just a commentary on the last phrase of verse 28, uh, all things work together for them to, uh, and uh, to good of them who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Actually, that's a clause. But the, the called according to his purpose, that's what we spend our time on. Um, I, and I was suggesting to you that uh, it is this purpose that God has that's being unfolded, in these uh, the, that's being commented on and unpacked in verses 29 and 30. Um, i suggested to you that there is no i mean this is not the only place where uh where god is described as having a purpose a plan we looked at several places uh, romans 9 ephesians 1 second timothy 2 um, i i also tried to point out that all of the prophetic utterances of the old and new testaments uh, depend upon uh god having that plan uh, God is in charge of the unfolding of future because he's in charge of his unfolding plan. I also tried to point out that the, the person that is in view in verses uh, 29 and 30 is God the Father. He is the subject of all these actions, or he is the actor in all these actions. Uh, I also pointed out two weeks ago that nothing that God has ever purposed has ever failed. It can't. Um, Uh, I I read you a text out of um, uh, Job chapter 42, where Job makes this uh, wonderful statement about, um, let me read it to you. Uh, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No, ladies and gentlemen, no purpose of his can be thwarted. Imagine um, what would happen to the character of God if those plans were thwarted. Uh, imagine what ha- what would happen to the character of God if his plans broke down and failed. Um, imagine what would happen to the character of God if somehow uh, man could frustrate his plan. Uh, that would, number one, mean that God is contingent. He is condi- he's conditioned uh, by, by something greater and bigger than he is, which would be uh, man, I guess. It would also give great occasion for Satan to laugh at this God. Um, I, I also pointed out some texts um, like are found in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, uh, let me read you just a couple. This is verses 12 and verse four, 14. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Um, that that this this unfolding plan involves this people, this this first fruits of his people. And um, this is the part, guys, that... Um, well, let me read you just one out of uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Um, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um... That is, what this was according to the eternal purpose. What was in accord to the eternal purpose? That is, that the church, um, uh, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the other places. That, the, that God is using the church to, to make known to um, rulers that we don't know even exist his manifold wisdom. Now, this is the part that really that I really uh, wince every time I thought about it that I had left out. And I want you to see this part. All of that's kind of a review of two weeks ago. But this is found in 1 Corinthians 15. And you, you need to see this, so take your Bibles and take the time to find it. 1 Corinthians 15. The grand goal of all of this purpose, this plan of God, is outlined for you here. 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning at verse 24. I'd like to read through verse 28. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God. Excuse me. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. And we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus. Uh, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Now listen to this verse 28. Critical. When all things are subjected to him, the Son, that is, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Do you get that? When all things are subjected to him, God the Son, then God the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, God the Son, that God the Father may be all and in all. Now, guys, in no way is Jesus in any way inferior to God the Father in dignity or being in character, but you will note in these verses That God the Son takes delight in subjecting Himself to the Father's plan. And what is that, the ultimate expression of that plan is that God may be all and in all. Folks, I guess the first thing that you, that we must get straight ...is that salvation is ultimately not for our sakes. It will be to our great benefit indeed. But the primary purpose is that God will be glorified. It's not about us or you. It's not about me. God in salvation through the church is vindicating himself... ...and manifesting himself to the whole universe... That God's absolute supremacy may be universally acknowledged, or in the language of first Corinthians fifteen, that God may be all in all. That is what this is about. Not seeing you play some harp in heaven. It is about the manifest that the that the ultimate glory of God be made manifest universally. And that God's absolute supremacy be acknowledged universe-wide. That God may be all in all. And that's what I left out, and I shouldn't have left that out. I told you that this was about a plan, and there it is, folks. The final expression of that is that God be all in all. Now, before we cover some new territory, let me remind you one other thing. Um, Verses 29 and 30, of back to Romans 8. Um, are describing someone who was mentioned in verse 28. 29 and 30 um, mentions the called, and it is they and they only who are being discussed in 29 and 30. What is God's purpose for those people, those called people? Well, let me assure you, it's not just that you can have forgiveness of sin. That is not his purpose. That is not his stated purpose. He says that. His stated purpose is that he might have a people who are conformed to the image of Christ, which then establishes the preeminence of Christ, and then Christ is going to take all that is subjected unto him and yield it to the Father. Folks, listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The only way that you can say that is that you keep in mind that what God is up to is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ using whatever he chooses, whatever is happening to you is a part of this unfolding purpose of God to make you into the image of Jesus Christ. Because that's his goal, that we all be conformed to that image. Now, that glorious purpose of God consists of five steps. They are mentioned for you in 29 and 30. Let me, let me kind of summarize them for you. Um, they're pretty easy to summarize. Um, For those whom he foreknew, them he predestined, and those whom he predestined he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. Now, guys, those are... um, those are the five steps that make up or unfold this this, uh, this plan that God has. I want you to notice the order. The order is going to be important. Something else that's going to be important is that all of these verbs in the Greek are in the Aeroist tense. That's going to be important, and you just hold on to that. The the, the Greek Aeroist is somewhat uh, equivalent to our past tense in the English language. It's not exactly, but the, the, the Greek arrowist has to do with a snapshot action, an action that was begun and completed in the past. That's, uh, if you're interested in the word, it's A-O-R-I-S-T. The Greek arrowist, all five of those are describing an action that was begun and completed in the past. That's going to be very important when you get to this word up here, but uh, we'll get to that later. Um, The the order is also important, but we'll talk about that more, too. Each of those five words describes the same set of people. Um, Perhaps some of you in your Sunday school classes uh, years ago heard this called the golden chain. Well, I don't like that, but they'd still call that. Um, But um, I, I, I said, let me say it again, each one of these words... Describe the same group of people. Here's the point. Um, Any man who is glorified is a man who is predestined. Or any man who is called is a man who is foreknew. Any man who is justified is a man who was called. All of those things are describing the same group of people. Any of those things that happen to one happen, all five of them happen to that group of people. Now, let me, let me do this real quick. I, some of you are interested in this kind of stuff. It is, it is a statement like this that has uh, led, in, in, in theological circles, the development of something that's called the Ordo Salutis. If you've ever been in my systematics class, you've heard of the Ordo Salutis. The Ordo Salutis is simply a Latin term which means the order of salvation. The point simply is there is a sequence there is an unfolding. There is, I mean, for instance, are you justified before or after you're glorified? Well, it's obvious that you're justified before that you're glorified. There are things that happen in order, in sequence, in the unfolding purposes and plan of God. I can say that these first two um I refer to what God has determined on your behalf, um a long time ago i i i um, um those happen to, they refer to what God has determined with respect to you. this word here call is somewhat of a a link between those two and these two because these two things are aren't talking about what happened in the uh uh in the decrees of God. these two things uh take place In time and space. These two two things are things that you realize. These two things you weren't particularly aware of, but these two you will be. Um, Guys, here's what I'm going (laughs) to do. What I'm going to do, and I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm pretty sure that the rest of the night we're going to be spending on that work. Next week we're going to spend on that work. I think after that we have a break, you know, back in, we don't come back until January, and I think we can do this word in a week, and I think we can do this, these two in one week. So that's what we're gonna do. All five of these words are, are terribly important. I can't tell you how important they are. Well, I think you probably know that. You don't have to need me to. But here's what I'm gonna do. Here's, here's my approach, guys. I think the best thing that I can do concerning these words, which, you know, have uh, a lot of baggage in, in some circles. I think the best thing that I can do for you is to ask you to face some texts. Um, some texts that are pertinent to these words. And then, um, instead of telling you what you ought to believe, let you respond to what God has said. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe. But you don't have to believe like I believe. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to ask you. In the course of these three or four weeks, we're together of these words. I'm going to ask you to look at some texts, and then, ladies and gentlemen, you have to draw uh, certain conclusions based on what you've read out of out of God's word. All right? So that's what I'm going to do. That's my uh, kind of my modus operandi. So um, we're going to look at the word. I think I know how to do this. I don't. Um, well, I was going to try to give you another screen, but I that uh, that didn't work. We're going to look at this word. Let's see if this works. Yes. We're going to look at foreknowledge or uh, foreknew. That's the word that's in your, your English translations. Um, now, guys, foreknowledge. Um, I am thinking that a lot of you are convinced that you know what that word means. And I'm not so sure. Yeah, I may be wrong, and uh, you, can, you can prove me wrong, and that'd be good. But the common understanding of foreknowledge goes something like this. Particularly in the Bible Belt, in the South, um, the, the, the common understanding of what, what God's foreknowledge is, is, is something like this. And you've heard this before, I bet. Uh, here's how we're supposed to understand this word. Because God is omniscient, you know what omniscient means, because God knows everything. Because God is omniscient, he knows beforehand uh, who would ultimately uh, believe in Jesus Christ. And as a result of knowing that, he then, this is why these words, the, the order is important, as a result of what he knows about what you're going to do, based on what he knows that you're going to do off in some future time, he then predestines you. Have you heard that before? Uh, that is um, that 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 I, I, the the good three word summary about um, uh, the common understanding is. Foresight of faith. God, because He's omniscient, knew that you were going to exercise this faith, and as a result of what He knew, He then responds to that by um, accepting you, granting grace, what whatever word you want to use. That is the common understanding, and I bet you, More than half of you have heard that before. I want to tell you something. You don't want that to be true. I promise you, you don't. You don't want that common thing to be true. And very honestly, I don't think you believe that. I I, I think perhaps you've been taught that, but I don't think you really believe it. Or perhaps you have not thought through the ramifications of that common view of foreknowledge. You don't want it. And I want to give you four, five, six reasons why. And then I'll tell you what what I think it means. First of all, Romans 8.29 does not say that God knew what certain people would do. It doesn't say that. Um, if that's what it said, the words would have to be changed. Instead of, for those whom he foreknew, uh, you would have to change it to be, for that which he knew. Now, guys, um, I hope that that's not lost on you. The text says, for those whom he foreknew. It does not say... For that which he foreknew. Do you see that the text does not say, or that the object of foreknowledge is not a what. It's a who. God does not foreknow what's. He foreknows who's or whom's. The object of God's foreknowledge is not information. It is people. For those whom He foreknew. If the common understanding of foreknowledge is correct, then you would expect these words, not the ones that you find. God does not foreknow what you decide. The object of his knowledge, or his foreknowledge, is not a what. It's a who. That's the first point. Um, <clears throat> this text, verse 29, is describing foreknowledge, what God is describing something that God did in the past. It is not describing what you and I would do sometime in the future. This is describing an act of God, not your act. Um, The focus of foreknowledge is on people. It is on whom's. It is not on what's. Now, let me go back. The common understanding of foreknowledge is that God knows uh, what you're going to do, uh, what decision you're going to make off in uh, the, the eons of time. And because he knows that, because he knows what you're going to do, he, um, he decides to do something in response. I'm saying to you that that text doesn't say that. It doesn't say for that which he foreknew. It says for whom he foreknew. That's very critical, guys. This is about people. It's not about decisions. Thirdly, and, and we gotta we got to go kind of fast here because we're running out of time. The word to know in the Bible oftentimes has nothing to do with the possession of information. I want to give you five or six examples of that. But uh, let me give you one that might even wake you up. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. And Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore Seth. Now tell me, what does new mean in Genesis 4 1? Does it mean that Adam walked into the tent and on on a very dark night and said, good evening madam, I'm Adam. Is that what that means by knew her? Or does it mean something else that was going on in that tent? Something a whole lot more fun. Do you you see my point? The word to know is not used to describe the possession of information. In that instance, it is used to describe an intimate relationship that you and I call sex. Let me show you several others, and, and guys, I, I think you should see these. I think you should lick your fingers. And how about um, Genesis chapter 18, Genesis 18:19? We got to go fast. Uh, God says, "For I have." And by the way, uh, let me let me let me read you mine, and then I'll I'll comment. Uh, this is 18:19, Genesis 8. For I have chosen him. That's Abraham. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord um, uh, by doing righteousness and justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, guys, the normal Hebrew word, um, the normal Hebrew word for no is yada. That's what you find there. In Genesis eighteen nineteen, you find the Hebrew word yada. Now. The translations, my translation, translated that word "chosen." Some of your translations have got the word "know" in it. That is eighteen, nineteen. The first couple of words: um, uh, "For I have known him." In fact, my little word in this translation, "chosen," it's got a little six by it down the bottom, down here. It says, "Oh, the Hebrew is known." Now, God says, "I have known." Him? What, what is God saying? That Abraham and I got together and we had a nice cup of coffee at Starbucks? So I got to know him? No, ladies and gentlemen. The translators here understand that something far more than the possession of facts is in view. Let's keep going. How about Jeremiah? Uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Jeremiah 1, 5 says... Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now how's that gonna happen? When there's nothing objective in existence, he's not even a sparkle in his daddy's eye. He's nothing. Before he, I uh, put you in the womb, blah, I knew you. Well, what did you know? If, if no means the possession of information, what did you know? He wasn't even in existence. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Because, again, the word is being used to describe something very, very intimate. To enter into an intimacy of relationship. Let's keep going. Um, Amos. No, no, no. Hosea. Hosea chapter 13. Hosea is the first minor prophet. Um, Hosea chapter 13, verse 5. It was I... Who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. <clears throat> Again, he's speaking to Israel. What is he saying? I was the one who knew you. That is, that is nonsensical if you understand that word to mean I had information about your existence. But he doesn't mean that. I knew you refers to an intimacy of relationship. Two more. Amos, which is the next book over. Amos chapter 3. This one is helpful, I think. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. He's again speaking to Israel and he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. If you say that the word know, this word right here, if you say that that means the possession of information, then what you're saying here is that God knew one nation of all the nations in the earth and he didn't know anything about the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the uh, American Indians. But that's not what it means. The word to know, yada, means to enter into intimacy. Now, guys, I'll give you one other quick one. It's Matthew chapter 20, excuse, It's Matthew 7, 23. I think you know this one. It's uh, the text where it says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do this? Did we not do this? And Jesus says, Depart from me. I never knew you. What do you think Jesus was saying? You and I have never been formally introduced. I'm not in possession of your name. I don't have any facts about you. Is that what he meant? That's nonsense, folks. Depart from me, I never knew you. I've never entered into an intimate relationship with you. So to use the word for know to say that it refers to a decision that you make is to violate the very usage of the word in the entirety of the Bible. Because the word's not used like that. Okay. But guys. Um, the word to know. In the Old and New Testaments. The, the Greek word is gnosko. But the word to know is used as a synonym. Almost. To love, or with to love, or at least it's a synonym to enter into some kind of relationship of intimacy. And in one instance, we saw even sex. Now, guys, um, I've, I've, I've said to you a couple of three things. First of all, um, the language of the text won't allow for the common understanding of foreknowledge, nor will the Hebrew terms nor the Greek terms allow you to use that kind of possession of information because I'm omniscient. Um, for this word to know. And I think those are great arguments. But that's not the best argument. That is, I said, you don't want to believe that. You don't want that position, guys. And let me tell you why. If your common understanding of foreknowledge is correct, then what you're saying is that faith, caused, either foreknowledge or perhaps worse, it caused him to predestine you. Because you're saying that he looks down the quarters of time, he noticed what you were going to do, and in response to what he saw you doing, he then predestined you, called, justified you, and glorified you. In response to something he saw that you would do, he then put you in his family. And that Faith becomes the causal agent of God moving in a relationship of grace with you. And so what you have done by that common understanding of foreknowledge is that you have turned the grounds of your justification and glorification and everything else, you've turned the grounds for that into... Something you did. In response to something you did. God said, oh, I see what he's going to do. And in response to I'm seeing what he did, I will then pull him into my family. Gang, you have turned faith into a work by the common understanding of foreknowledge. If that common understanding of foreknowledge is true, then God extends grace to those who work this work called faith. And you have destroyed Cardinal principle of the New Testament, of justification by faith alone. You have taken faith and made it in. It's called fetism, ladies and gentlemen. You have turned faith into a work. And the New Testament clearly says that faith is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God. Guys, faith cannot be the cause of foreknowledge. No one can be worthy of grace. No one can do something and thereby deserve God's moving towards them. You do not earn foreknowledge or predestined or called or justified. or You don't earn any of that. But if the common understanding of foreknowledge is correct, the one that you were taught in your Sunday school classes for years, that is, that God looked down the corners of time and he saw what you were going to do as a result of him seeing what you were going to do, he thus swept you up into his family. Do you see what you have done You have taken a gospel that's free, free of merit, free of works, and you've turned it, you've turned the whole thing on its ear. Because you have said, God accepts anybody that works the work of faith. Folks, the grounds of our salvation is always The finished work of Jesus Christ, not your faith. You must get that. It is critical, guys. Because those of you who are in possession of faith tonight, you're in possession because God granted you eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm suggesting that to foreknow is to for love. You want a definition? There's mine. But I'll close with this. The result of your position, whatever that position is, can never encourage spiritual laziness. Because as the text says, <laughs> He foreknew and predestined uh, to be conformed to the image of his Son. the end result for all of those that he foreknew is that they're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ to be head and ruler over its people ultimately the proof that you understand these words aright ultimately the proof that you understand these these rich concepts behind these words is that you find in you a growing deepening urge to be conformed to the image of Christ. If you do not have that, you do not understand this word. Nor that one, nor that one, nor that one, nor that one. Because the proof that you do is that what you're finding in you is that you're being conformed. You're being made into the light Jesus Christ quit Lord I pray that whatever lack of clarity I have given that your spirit would make clear what I have made confusing and that you will plant in your people such a love of these this great redemption that is ours that they find themselves with an ever-increasing appetite for holy living, for conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Might we not settle for some kind of lazy, sleepy, slothful relationship with Christ that glories in the fact that we're forgiven and on our way to heaven because the goal of you saving us is so much bigger than that. Do that, O God, for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Good night. Good night.